Does anyone actually know how history will end? In Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, Jesus Christ predicted the signs that would intensify as we approach the culmination of history. Let's open our Bibles and join our study leader, Dave Woodson, as he challenges us to expect the unexpected. If we look back into time before the turnover from the first millennium into the 20th century, as we moved from a thousand into the 1100s, there was tremendous stress in the church, tremendous stress in society back then thinking about this could be it. And you're going to have a lot of that increased feelings. Well, this could be the end. Now, how should we as believers relate to all this? We know how we should relate to the first coming of Christ and we celebrate the incarnation. What about the second coming of Christ? What about the fears that might take place in the end? What's going to happen in the end? What's going to happen in the future? Well, the disciples asked that question in Matthew chapter 24, and we want to talk about expecting the unexpected. We want to talk about the Messiah's teaching about his kingdom as we move into the Passion Week and talk about the last week of Christ, one of the major things that the Lord Jesus talked over with his disciples was the question about what's going to happen in the end. Only these questions in Matthew 24, if you'll open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24, these questions about the end were introduced in a very interesting setting. Matthew chapter 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple. Now, this was right after the Lord Jesus had very strongly criticized the entire worship system of that temple. He had just castigated the hypocrisy, the focus on human materialism, the stress upon just the human temple. He talked about hypocrisy. In the other accounts of what we might call the Olivet Discourse or this discourse concerning last things by the Messiah, in the last week before he died, in Luke chapter 21 and Mark chapter 13, this account is introduced by the widow's might. And putting all of that together, Jesus is just leaving the temple. I think there might even be power in that idea of him leaving the temple because he's saying that something has been missed. Something has been missed in all this beauty and all this ceremony of the Jewish worship of the first century. Mark and Luke talk about a widow that comes and she puts in all that she has. And the Lord Jesus brings out that you've got all of these rich people that are coming and very possibly they exchanged some of their money to get much smaller coins and they threw into these large receptacles that would ring like brass, large numbers of coins to emphasize how much they were giving. And he contrasted that with a widow that in secret and very privately came and from the depths of her heart, she cast her faith upon the Lord. So you've got this contrast between pompous outward show and the integrity of a very poor woman who is expressing all of her devotion to God in a very tangible form by saying, if this is all that I have left, I may as well give it to the Lord because he's going to have to be the one that provides. All that is entering in to the questions that are going to be raised by the disciples. The Lord leaves the temple. 
And his disciples were calling attention to the building. Now, this building was incredible. This was kind of like uh, going to the new Meyerson Symphony Center. The first century temple was one of the wonders of the ancient world. And the disciples were just like all the other pilgrims that had come, and they're looking at the building. Now, usually when you're with people and say, man, the Meyerson Center, look at this, usually go on and talk about the architect, you talk about the money that was invested, and you go on and talk about the building. The Lord, and you can catch some of the impact of this, if you think of going to the Meyerson with somebody, and you say, wow, look at this, and they turn to you and say, yeah, it's really nice, but the whole thing is going to become rubble. They're going to bring wrecking bars against this thing, wrecking balls, and they're going to just totally destroy this entire center and not one stone is going to be left upon the other. Now, if you were with somebody that talked like that, you'd feel, man, it's killjoy. You know, what's going on here? We're celebrating beauty. We're celebrating this fantastic creation that's taken place. And he's talking about tearing it down. And we would ask the question, why? Why do you talk like that? And that's the questions that the disciples raised. Because Jesus said exactly that about the Herodian temple. He says, do you see all these things? And I can see the disciples going, yeah, 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 I do. It's unbelievable. I tell you the truth. Not one stone will be left upon the other. Every one of them will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, and what you can picture, you leave the temple, you go down through the Kidron Valley, not very far walk, Mary and I have done it ourselves. It's a very beautiful walk up through the olive orchards. And then they would sit down up on the Mount of Olives and very possibly they're facing this Herodian temple complex. The Mount of Olives is a little bit higher than Mount Zion. So you're overlooking this, this unbelievable, breathtaking view. And so that's the setting. Jesus sits down on the Mount of Olives with his disciples. And from the other Gospels, we can gather that there were other groups that were gathered around them it's not just the disciples so we have kind of an inner circle and then a broader circle of other disciples that follow the lord and other listeners and jesus sits down and he talks to them the disciples ask him this question when will this happen when is this temple going to be destroyed when is it going to be that not one stone will be left upon the other and second of all what will be the sign of your coming and what will be the sign of the end of the age? Now, we need to think about this from the disciples' perspective. The first question they ask is, has to do with when is this temple that we are now looking at from the Mount of Olives, when will every stone be torn apart? That's one of the questions. Another question has to do with when will your coming take place? And that, that's a very similar question to what is asked in Acts chapter 1. When Jesus rose again from the dead, just before he ascended, the disciples said, will you at this time install your kingdom? In the Old Testament, it talks about a great messianic figure that comes to rule and reign from the city of Jerusalem. And a Jew was very much attuned to the promise of this deliverer that would set them free. And the disciples, even after Christ rose again from the dead, they were beginning to realize, yes, the Messiah should suffer, he should die, but he should also rise again. 
So after Jesus rose again from the dead, they're now concerned, let's go on to the next major thing that the Old Testament talked about, the instigation of the Davidic kingdom here on the earth. And that's why the disciples often, that's why James and John come to the Lord and say, can we sit at your right hand? Remember, they got their mom to go. Can we sit at your right hand in the kingdom? They're very concerned about ruling over a literal kingdom in Jerusalem. And then that same kind of a question is asked here. When will your coming take place? And what will be the sign of that coming? And then finally, they believe that would be the end of the age. When the Messiah ruled and reigned in Jerusalem, it would move us towards the culmination, the restoration of heaven and earth, and the great eternal kingdom. So we really have three questions. One, when's the destruction of the temple going to take place? Number two, are you going to install your kingdom? When are you going to do that? And what about the end of the age? Those questions are all involved in the Lord's answer. Let's look at how the Lord responds. And in all three accounts, in Matthew 24, Mark chapter 13, and Luke chapter 21, he starts out answering your question with beware of deceptive signs. So you want to underline your thinking. Beware of deceptive signs. And there's three basic deceptive signs that the disciples needed to be wary about. Now, they needed to be wary about these signs that in the period before the destruction of the temple, these three things would be taking place. But I believe that the Lord is also going to give information that is relevant to us as we're living in the time in between. Sometimes I think that we get all involved in these debates that we miss what is very clear from the text. We miss really finding some, some meat that needs to control the way we live. In fact, even some of the ambiguity about exactly what this applies to causes us to kind of throw up our hands in exasperation and say, well, you know, I can't find the answer to that. I mean, if Dr. Wolver can't agree with the guys up at Trinity Seminary, then what chance do I have of understanding anything? And what I want to do is I think it's very important for us to put these passages into a living flesh and blood, everyday kind of setting. Because a lot of what Jesus talks about, sure there's ambiguity in this passage, but there's some very concrete things that we can get a hold of that we need to build our lives upon. And these three ideas of deceptive signs are things that we need to be very concerned about. Jesus warned the disciples, before the destruction of Jerusalem, there were going to be three deceptive signs. I believe that before the culmination of the kingdom of God, before God comes, before Christ returns to this world, once again, in fact, in a smaller sense, and all through the church age, the age that we're living in right now, there's going to be false prophets. Right now, there are false Christs. Right now, there's going to be wars and revolutions. And right now, there's going to be all kinds of natural disasters. That was true before the destruction of Jerusalem. It's going to be true in our lifetime. It'll be true in the Great Tribulation period. How should we, we respond to that? Look what Jesus says. In verse 4, he says, Watch out that no one deceives you. If the Son of God tells us, watch out. Don't be taken in. Don't be deceived. It means that we should count on the fact that as we live our Christian life, 
there are going to be those that are trying to deceive us. The reality of the matter is that there are going to be some of you that if the Lord tarries, will be deceived by false Christ. Right now, you're gathered with us. Right now, you're under the teaching of the Word of God. Right now, you're seeking to worship Jesus of Nazareth. But as time goes by, some of the young people might go away to university and a false Christ will arise in their mind. Every one of the Matthew, Luke, and Mark accounts stress the idea of false Christ. Now in the first century, before the destruction of Jerusalem, there were many Jewish prophets that rose up, many of them among the zealots. The zealots were the class in Judaism, the, the, the group in Judaism that wanted to throw off the Roman yoke. A false prophet would rise up and say, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Deliverer. And young men and women by the hundreds of thousands would begin to follow these leaders. And up until 70 A.D., right about 68, you had these tremendous, tumultuous uprisings. Follow me. I'm going to be the answer. I'm going to be the way of life. Now, many believers that knew this passage, when they saw this taking place, many of them realized this is what Jesus warned us about. And they were careful. In fact, history tells us that about 68 A.D., as the Roman legions began a pincher operation against the city of Jerusalem, many of the believers fled out into the wilderness. Many of those that had trusted Christ as their Savior, many of the Jewish believers fled the city. So if you don't think Jesus' instructions are very practical, they saved the lives of many of his people because they knew when these prophets were rising up, we're the Messiah, we've got the answer, we can give you the way of life. Jesus had warned them, beware of those who come in my name. In our lives, it's a subtle game. People will sing. People will sing about Jesus. And yet if you compare what they're saying with what the Scripture teaches, it's a very different message false Christ on an even broader basis to the idea of false answers to life. Just to show you how subtly this thing goes. Like at the high school, they, they illustrate right here in our town, to show you how different messages come through. At a talent night, I went the other night and leaned up against the wall at the back of the auditorium and I listened to the different kinds of talent. And there was really a mix of talent, wasn't there, teenagers? There were a lot of different kinds of things. What's really interesting is one of the girls, the girl that won, got up and sang about the kingdom of Christ, about what we're talking about here, the day when Christ will come and he will rule and he will reign. Kelly sang about the light of Christ who comes into our life and brings the meaning of life. Another girl got up and sang, and knowing in our society, and I'm not saying this to put down any individuals because I think it's very possible because the way that our day works is a lot of times we don't even think about what is being said. But I want you to listen to these words. Imagine there's no heaven. No hell below us. Above us, only sky. Imagine all the people just living for today. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. Perhaps someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Imagine a world 
There's nothing to live and die for. No need for greed or hunger because all of our possessions belong to all of us. Those are the words that rang out. You've all heard that song. Imagine there's no heaven. You've all heard that song. Beautiful melody written by the Beatles. Beautiful, beautiful melody. What, think about those words. What are those words saying? You know what those words said? First of all, those words said to every believer in the audience, they said that the Bible is totally untrue. Because the Bible doesn't talk about a heaven necessarily above us. It uses figurative language. It talks about a world where there's heaven, where Jesus and God and the Spirit reign. It talks about a hell where there is evil and where there is rebellion and where there is antagonism to God. You know what it said to all the veterans in the United States? Did you ever stop and think? Nothing to live or die for. How many of you have served in the United States Armed Forces? Raise their hand. When you served in the, in the United States Armed Forces, what does the phrase, nothing to live or die for, mean to you? You know the incredible thing, just to show you how the ideas in our culture move. You know, the very freedom for us to be able to get up and talk about Christ, to be able to get up and talk about even ideas that are contrary. And I'll defend the right for people within our society to even share ideas that are contrary to mine because that's what freedom is about. But I also want us to stop and think about ideas. Think about what is being communicated. Because the great false Christ, the great false Messiah of our day is that everyone turns off their mind and they don't ever stop and think. They don't think about what is being said. And I want us to be alert to that. We have an idea that everybody's saying the same thing, and they're not. As long as it gives me a good feeling, as long as there's kind of a warmness with it, I don't put my mind in gear and think about what is being said. I think in our own day, the idea of false Christ is very much related to the idea of putting our mind in neutral and just being into kind of a warm emotionalism. And we don't stop and think, what do I really believe? I believe there are things worth living and dying for. I'm thankful for those that have sacrificed their lives so that I can be free. I also believe in an ultimate sense I need to be willing to live and die for Christ. And if I'm not, then life doesn't have any meaning. In other words, to turn all the meaning in this life to just now means to destroy what is beautiful. You see, if I love my family so much, if I love my family so much, but I would not be willing to give my life for them, then I destroy the meaning of family. If I would just allow them to be sacrificed by a thief or a robber or something like that because I'm a chicken, instead of defending them, then what am I as a daddy? You see, all of life has to do with there are some ultimate things that demand the giving of our life. Christ is the ultimate one who demands that. There are things that we need to live and die for. And that's what Jesus is saying. Some of the false Christ of our own day, they're communicating messages to us that are not the messages of the true Christ. Now, in the great tribulation period, 
at the final seven years before the Lord comes, there is going to be an ultimate false Christ called the Antichrist. He's going to be a great Western leader who signs a peace covenant with the nation of Israel. And he is going to be the ultimate expression of a false Christ. Beware of that. Beware of that. When people are saying, we can bring peace, we can bring prosperity, we can bring in the end of all war and all pestilence, we've got the answer. Jesus says, watch out. If their name isn't Jesus of Nazareth and they can't put up their hands and show you nail prints, and if they don't come like a lightning bolt from the sky that nobody can miss, then beware. And I'm saying that it's very important to warn all of us because the reality of life says that some of you will be duped by the false Christ. What about a second deception? Wars and revolutions. Notice what Jesus says here. It says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So here we have wars and rumors of wars. How many of you find you go through periods in your life, like right now, I would say it's kind of a period of euphoria. I mean, how many of you have heard someone say, I can't believe what's happening. It's incredible. How many of you have heard that? Now, how many of you have heard this? We are on the way. We are on the way to really getting things together. How many of you have heard that? I mean, I've grown up with the Cold War. I don't remember what it was like. When I was a kid growing up in school, we used to go out in the hallway and put leather jackets over our head. We'd wear our leather winter jackets back in New Jersey. We'd go out in the hallway and we'd get all ducked down the hallway and pull our jackets over our head. How many of you did that? To me, I think that's really interesting, you know, that a nuclear explosion goes off in the city of Dallas and we're sitting out here in Midlothian with our leather jackets over our heads. But that's the kind of a world we lived in. The Cuban Missile Crisis. How many of you remember that? And you remember finding out later, man, we were right on the verge and right on the edge? And that was scary. But now all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the Ruskies are the Russians. And they're friends. Right? But you're going to hear euphoria. You're going to hear euphoria. There's going to be peace. We're going to get it all together. Watch out. Be careful. Because I promise you there's going to be wars and rumors of war until Jesus comes. Now that doesn't mean that we can't be involved in the political process, that we can't let righteous people that will exalt a nation to make wise decisions, but truly righteous people will never be so idealistic to think that they can bring in goodness and peace and righteousness and holiness and a joy on the earth, they'll never believe they can do that in an ultimate sense. And it's very important not to believe you can do that in an ultimate sense because if you do, you'll be divorced from reality and you'll be duped by the very cause that you gave your life for. A believer is one of the most realistic persons I know on the earth. Because they believe in joy. They believe in peace. They believe in all of these realities. And they hunger for it. But they root it in the person of the Savior. And they realize that to give their allegiance in an ultimate sense to any other cause 
will in the long run deceive them. So they're able to work patiently. They're also able to work realistically because they know there's such a thing called evil. They know people lie. They know that people deceive. They know that people can be violent. And they're able to put that into the formula. What I'm saying today, some of our young people will rise up and there will be movements that grab a hold of them. Some of my friends were grabbed by movements. And they gave their entire lives to that movement. We're going to bring about peace. But as the reality of life started to impinge on their life and they found out that right within the peace movement, there was tremendous hatred. Right within the peace movement, there was incredible violence. The man that wrote, imagine there's no heaven, no hell, nothing to live or die for, was brutally murdered by one of his fans with a pistol in New York. That's the reality of life. And that's what I love about our dear Lord Jesus, because when you give your life to him, when you pour your life into bringing him into other people's lives as you grow older, rather than finding out, oh, it was a delusion, it was a false Christ. Instead of that, you have this realism. There's going to be wars. There's going to be rumors of war. Light's going to have all this ebb and flow until he comes back. But he's coming. And we're moving towards a time when he will come and then there will be peace on earth, which is what we sing about at Christmas. A third area that means a whole lot to us is what about the natural disasters? Where can you go to get away from natural disasters? Do you know what Jesus was saying? He told his children, you're going to go out into the world and you're not going to be able to get away from these kinds of catastrophes, these natural disasters that can invade our lives at any time in any place. He tells you that if you know him, you don't need to be afraid because all of these natural disasters are just the beginning. They're just the beginning of birth pangs. It's the beginning of the coming of the great age of the Messiah. But they are deceptive signs because people, when they're experiencing these things, tend to think this is the end. This is the end of the world. This is the end of life as we know it. No, it's not the end yet. It's only the beginning. It's the beginning of birth pangs. You've probably even heard messages where a preacher will go on. There's going to be war and they're increasing. There's going to be famines and earthquakes and they're increasing. And there's going to be false Christs and just look around you, they're increasing. So this must mean let's sell all of our possessions. Let's go out and travel to Jerusalem and climb up in the Mount of Olives and, and let's just stand there with our hands held high into the air and wait for the Messiah to come back. Down through time, believers have done just exactly that. They have misunderstood what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse. These are deceptive signs. They're just the beginning of birth pangs. Now, Mary and I, my wife Mary and I, know a lot about deceptive birth pains because our collie dog that we have, we raised puppies, just had six of them. Now, the vet told us that when the collie's temperature dropped, the puppies were coming. So I decided that I would be able to determine when our dog was going to be able to have these puppies, and so I started taking her temperature on a regular basis. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to take a dog's temperature, but it's, it's a very involved process, and it's not like taking your kid's temperature. But I started doing it, and I would come running out into the living room and say, Mary, they're coming today. Her temperature has dropped. I came out on Tuesday. I came out on Wednesday. I came out again on Thursday. You know, that dog started to completely control our entire life. 
We didn't want to go out. We didn't want to do this. We couldn't do this or that with our friends because the puppies were coming and we couldn't miss the event. I want to tell you something. Those were deceptive signs. Now, our Lord was warning us about exactly that, beginning to control our lives by the signs. You see, the deception was when Mary and I began to stop our activity, especially the activities that needed to be done. We were supposed to go, for example, to the Bill Glass banquet to, to meet with other believers and celebrate what God had done. But we said to ourselves, oh, we can't do that. Our puppies are coming. Oh, yes, we could do that, and we should do that. The Lord was telling us these are deceptive signs. The Lord is telling us that as we go through these famines and wars in life and we face cataclysmic events that come up from time to time, we need to keep on going. We need to keep on going and we need to keep on doing the everyday things. That's the incredible reality of the Word of God. It doesn't tell us to go out and sell all of our possessions. It doesn't tell us to go out and do the crazy thing. It tells us to do the simple thing and the godly thing. We are to live faithfully. We are to keep doing what we're supposed to be doing. We need to do the little things like continue to take care of our kids. We need to continue to keep telling people about the Lord Jesus and the good news that his salvation brings. We need to keep fellowshipping in our local congregation with other believers. We need to not get caught up in this, in this catastrophic mentality that, oh no, it's the end. What in the world are we going to do? Instead, we need to be skillful people. We need to be wise people. Isn't it a tremendous thing that when the news says there's an earthquake in California, that as believers that we can say, you know, my Lord told me that those kind of chaotic events were going to happen. And the Lord can move us to pray for the people that are involved in that catastrophe. Suppose that we're a believing fireman that, that has to go out and really be of help to people in, in the face of, of a great natural disaster. We can go out there and we can help them. And as we do it, we can say, Lord, this is a chaotic mess. And but I don't have to see that chaos and get down on life. I don't have to say if these catastrophes are taking place all the time and if I can just get in my car and be going across an interstate bridge and suddenly it's all over and I begin to say, well, man, if that's the chance happenings of life, if that's the way the probabilities work, what's the use? I may as well go ahead and be immoral and instead of being faithful to my wife. I may as well just go out and just really get high or I might just as well go out and get drunk. What's the use anyway? Life is just chaotic. The word of God speaks to that kind of foolishness and says that our Savior, the one that's in control of history, told us there would be catastrophes. These are the beginning of birth pangs. They're telling us that he is not ruling and reigning on his throne in Jerusalem yet. But that day is coming. And instead, of reacting to catastrophe in the present with despair and anguish, we can respond to it with hope and confidence, knowing that they are the signals that our Lord is coming back. The godly rescuer can go out into the midst of a chaotic events, and he can say, well, my Messiah has not come yet, and it's probably going to get worse, and times will even get harder, but I need to continue to represent my Lord. I need to continue to tell others about him. I need to continue to serve people that are in need i want to challenge you watch out for those deceptive signs watch out for those ideas that you that are calling you to drop out and to stop doing the everyday normal things that 
need to be done. Before the destruction of Jerusalem in Jesus' day in 70 AD, about 30 years, 40 years after he was crucified, before the destruction of Jerusalem, which was the first cataclysmic event or the first crisis event in the prophetic program of God that, that the Lord talked about in his Olivet Discourse, all of these signs were taking place. There were famines. There were earthquakes. Throughout the ancient Roman world, there were great catastrophes. During our present age, as we look forward to the coming of the Messiah, these signs continue to take place. And I believe that they are just like birth pangs. There will be an increase in their frequency as we move toward the end of time. But the message of the Olivet Discourse is not to drop out. It's not to do crazy things, but instead it's to do faithful things. We are to be loyal. We are to be worshiping our Savior. We are to be obedient to Scripture. We are to live the kind of a lives that unbelievers can look at our example and know that we've found some answers because of the quality and the skill with which we live our lives. The second thing Jesus talks to us about here in this passage is the threat of persecution and apostasy. He links persecution and apostasy. You know, there is a tremendous threat that when the pressure's on to want to bail out, we need to be very careful about that. Look what the Lord says in verse 9. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and to be put to death. You will be, be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and they'll betray and they'll hate each other. Many false prophets will appear and they'll deceive even my own people or many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be safe. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then, then the end will come. The Lord is telling us here, number one, that persecution tends to cause the church, the gathered community of believers, to divide. And those that genuinely know Christ as their Savior tend to get stronger. Those that don't really genuinely believe tend to become deceivers. They tend to tell lies about those that genuinely do believe. You can just ask anyone, for example, missionaries that have been involved in, in various persecutions in other countries or ask some of our fellow believers that have ministered behind the Iron Curtain during days of tremendous persecution. And you'll find out that persecution refines the faithful, but it tends to cause those that are deceivers, the Judases that are in the camp, to even lie about their fellow believers and sometimes even turn them over to be persecuted. Persecution refines the metal. The true refining fire of God is found in persecution. You might say, Dave, how do, how do I prepare for that hard time? The best way to prepare for a time of persecution, I want you to get this, it's faithful living in the present. The best way to prepare for a time of persecution is faithful living in the present. I think often that we have the idea that when we read stories about the church facing persecution, especially in foreign countries, we as American believers feel that we don't face any persecution here. I think that we're wrong in our thinking. I think the American church does face emotional and psychological persecution. Ephesians tell us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and, and powers against the ruler of the darkness of this world. I find in pastoring for over 20 years here in Midlothian, Texas, that, Texas, that there can be tremendous attacks 
against God's children here in, the, in America. And these attacks can take place in their minds and in their emotions. What does he mean by the increase of wickedness causes us to grow cold? I think I can illustrate it like this. So Mary was just telling me that a pastor friend of ours had just found out if, that one of his associates had been involved in an immoral affair with somebody in their church. They had to bring this delicate matter before the entire congregation because the news had swept through the community. The church had one of those tearful and, and just very emotional Sunday morning meetings. Do you see how powerful sin is? But that's what this passage is so meaningful because my Savior comes to me and says, David, I've already told you about that as your loving Master and Lord. I've already told you what people are going to be like. I already told you what you're going to be like. I didn't make you naive. My word spelled out what was going to happen down through the ages. There was going to be increasing wickedness. There's going to be immorality. There's going to be thieving. There's uh, stealing. There's going to be uh, idolatry. There's going to be violence. There's going to be all that you've experienced and all that your church family is experiencing. But it's okay because I'm going to come and there's going to be those that keep doing what I told them to do. Now, what was that? The Lord says that all of this is going to happen. People are going to grow cold because wickedness increases. People are going to get discouraged and say, why even try to make my family work? It's work, it's hopeless. No, it isn't. Don't grow cold because of wickedness because you can see there can restoration. But we close with verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. I think it's very, very wrong if it's dispensational as we say, well, this just applies to the last seven years and the 144,000 Jews are going to get the job done and then the Lord will come so we can go, I don't have to worry about it. Oh, yes, you do. You know what's really important? We have the ultimate answer. Do you know what? You have an answer that the most learned PhDs. It's not an answer for everything, but it's the answer for the most important things. If you have a dysfunctioning bladder, it's not the answer. It will be ultimately the answer. It'll give you a new bladder. But you need to go to a medical doctor. There's other problems where you need a good psychologist. But you know what I'm afraid of? The Church of Jesus Christ in our day is forgetting that we have the ultimate answer. And we've forgotten that we are under a very strong imperative to take the gospel into all the world. It's a very simple thing, but it's a most profound thing. Number one, God loves us. Every one of us. Number two, every one of us are sinners separated from God. Number three, Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, as you've heard me say hundreds of times, stretched out his arms and forgave us, took the rap for us, took the penalty for our sin. And Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. Do you believe that?